All right, all right. Well, good morning. My name is Jason. If you're visiting, I generally do the teaching, but today we have a gift all the way from Portland, and some of you wonder who I'm greeting when I say on the podcast or say something to Portland. It's entirely and always about Kurt Kroon, who pastors a church in Portland, uh, and who I have gotten to know. I think I met Kurt and Sally for the very first time in the basement of the COO's house of a former denomination that we both worked for and, had, and then were summarily ejected from for the same reason, very different circumstances, but the same reason. And then Kurt joined about 10 of us here from Austin, Wade and John Jennings and Caleb Snyder and who else? A bunch of guys. Um, Ellier. Ellier. And we hiked the Inca Trail, a dream of mine forever all the way from Cusco to Machu Picchu. We did the full day deal, the full four or five day deal. And so we have some very compromising pictures of Kurt that we thought we might show you. <laughs> because when you are allowed to choose one set of clothing to walk for five days, you not only smell like a horse, but you can't be terribly concerned about how you look. And I have some great shots of Kurt high on the mountains. High on the mountains, not high on anything else. <laughs> Anyway, Kurt is one of those guys, so uh, a friend of mine said, you know, make a one-by-one -one post-it note and put it on your computer and only care about the opinions of those people. So Kurt would be on that one-by-one post-it note of, for me. We have walked with each other through some ugly stuff, through some scary stuff, through churches that grow, churches that shrink, through difficult times. Um, and so Kurt's going to bring the word. So why don't you welcome Kurt this morning? Hey, good morning, Austin. It is fantastic to be with you. Um, it's true. It is, there is something about being with people and nowhere else to go. Um, and I can't describe my relationship to these all other than Stockholm Syndrome. I, uh, I felt imprisoned and I had nowhere else to go, so I made friends to make my way out. That should be funny. Um, these are really good <laughs> friends and people. Yeah. I always find the best way to start a sermon is to explain a joke and tell people it's funny to make them laugh. So we're off to a great start. Here we go. All right. How many of you for Thanksgiving, Christmas coming up in the holiday season, you're going to be spending time with extended family? Anybody? Yeah. When I'm around my extended family, there's a part of me, there's a piece of me that so many things fall into place. I go, oh, that's why I am the way I am. This is why I've spent so much money on therapy and counseling for so <laughs> many years. Things fall into place and then there's other parts of yourself that are like, yeah, I'm still unpacking that years and years later. And it's this weird mix of feeling fully seen and known and feeling like, what is this tribe, this system I came from. And I feel that way now in the United States of America when people are like, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor of a Christian church. Being a Christian feels like a really complicated thing. And there's almost this desire when they're like, I'm a Christian, but like, not like that kind of Christian. And that's confusing for people that aren't. They're like, well, I don't, what's the difference? Is there a difference? Are you just, you are, but you aren't? And so what's been really helpful for me recently is to go back and look and say, there's actually this, these stories of Christianity historically where some things start to become divided and start to morph and start to distort. 
and they're kind of re uh, recycling uh, patterns in history. And if we kind of understand the way that these patterns take on that have distorted this idea of, of Jesus, I think it allows us to be present in this cultural moment, call ourselves a Christian and to say, but there are these marks of Christianity that, that, is, that is not the path of Jesus. It's not the thing that we're walking on. We don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater because there's something to reclaim and redeem. Now, if I'm going through this and at any point you're like, I disagree with that. I love that. That's fantastic. You should. My one request is you should also ask just one more question. Why do you disagree with me? What, what's, what's behind the disagreement? If there's something that strikes you wrong. So we're going to do a little history lesson this morning. If that is boring, I'm so sorry. Uh, but I hope it will make it a little bit interesting. So we're going to start back with the beginning of Christianity. The reason why this is 2019 is because we reoriented our calendars around the life of Jesus. So zero-ish to 30-ish is the life of Jesus. And this whole Christian thing kind of starts moving, but it is a tiny little part of the Jewish people, which is already a small part of the Roman Empire in the first century. And they just kind of get grandfathered in with some form of religious tolerance because they're not Jews, but they're Jew-ish. You know, these Christians are, that was funny, that was funny. Every joke, I will say, that's funny and point at you all. They existed as kind of this little subsect of Jews. And so they were largely ignored until there was a great fire in Rome. And when you're looking for a scapegoat, you're going to look for the minority of people. You're going to look for someone that it's easy to blame it on, that don't make the majority of the population, and Christians fit that bill. And so they became blamed for these fires and were heavily persecuted. You think of lions and Christians in the arena. This is during this time, the rule of Diocletian and other Roman emperors. And this kind of rises and falls for the first 300 years. But something fascinating happens in 312. So Roman emperors, it wasn't part of a democratic system where you just voted in the Roman emperor. It was the result of warfare. And so Constantine was vying for the throne and he was protecting it. And in 312, he was on the precipice of a huge battle, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And as he went to sleep the night before the Milvian Bridge, he had this image, and it was of the cross. And it, he saw a sign that said, by this sign you shall conquer. So when he woke the next day, one of the standards that they took with them in battle, it's kind of this banner that they had, was of the Cairo of Jesus, and they, they took the cross the cross is what they used in battle. They, some of the soldiers put the cross on their shields, and they won the battle. Constantine was victorious, and so he didn't convert to Christianity where we would, where you kind of deny all other gods, but in the Roman culture, he just adopted Christianity as well, and kind of the pantheon of other gods that they worshipped. And so now, for the first time, Christianity was pulled from the shadows and was funded by the Roman government. And this is what led to our councils. These are Constantine-funded. And if you go back in Christian history, guess what? All the Christian historians love Constantine because he was bankrolling a lot of their ministry and work, and he was taking them from this tiny oppressed thing to having a new standing in the whole society. Do you see this image? When I said they put a cross on the shield, none of you gasp. 
which leads me to believe you are very much a part of the United States of America, where Christianity and military power, there is no dissonance there. Sure. My friend, Scott Erickson, who's an artist, he's working on a piece where he's going to put a Jesus fish on a tank. And I'm like, do you think anyone will notice? Why should this be dissonant? That we don't have the angels of the Lord saying, hey, you missed one, kill them over there. It should be dissonant because Jesus, when he is at his most threatened, he is about to be arrested. Basically, the Jewish system, the Pharisees and leaders are starting the wheels of motion of this Roman Empire to kill Jesus on their behalf. When he comes to be arrested, Peter, one of his followers, cuts off the ear of a Roman centurion. And what does Jesus do? He says, let's go, warfare. And they all pulled out their swords. And he did like Sith moves where he's like, gah, gah, gah. You like that, Justice? We played that game last night. <laughs> Just a lot of like Jedi moves to get them with the most powerful person ever. No. The power of Jesus was to restore the ear to the Roman centurion. He said, put your swords away. This is not who we are. This is not the movement of Jesus. Prior to Jesus, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was the Jewish understanding of justice. And Jesus said, no, you turn the other cheek. Agro-Christians of this day love too much to talk about Jesus in the temple, throwing over tables and casting out the money changers. Why did Jesus do that? Because the money changers had created an oppressive system to keep people that didn't have money out of this religious system, which meant that they had to be religiously unclean and they could not be in community with their friends and their family because of money. And Jesus wanted to overthrow that system. Jesus was not using his power for his own sake or to build his own ministry, but on behalf of those that had nothing. So when the Roman emperor puts the cross, which is a symbol of Roman control of the population, if you cross us, we're going to kill, cross us, point, laugh. If you cross us, that was more worthy of a groan, we will demonstrate this to everyone so that they can see. This is what happens when you mess with us. And they put it on the shield leading the Roman Empire. Now, there's different movements that happen after this. Certainly uh, repentance. There's certainly reformation that happens where there's kind of a disentangling of Christianity from this Roman military super complex. And yet these cycles repeat. Let's jump ahead a little bit more than 500 years. Let's get to 1096. And we're going to move west. We're going to get into France, where there is Godfrey de Bion. Godfrey de Bion was called and inspired by the Pope of the time, Pope Urban II, and said that in Jerusalem, the birthplace of our Christian faith, the Muslims have taken over. They rule the city. And so he called the knightly class in France to arm up, to travel across Europe, and to exterminate them to reclaim Jerusalem as their right. And Pope Urban was so pervasive and persuasive in his speech that the peasant class actually took up arms and went, even though they were not the ones being called. And as they traveled over, they killed thousands of Jews in the Rhineland 
because they were also in the way of this Christian empire that needed to spread. This man, Godfrey de Bion, was named the king of Jerusalem when his three-year siege was successful on Jerusalem, and they had killed thousands and thousands of Muslims. And you would say that if we're playing the highlight reel of Christianity, when we really were getting it right historically, you wouldn't assume the Crusades would be on that list. And yet, this statue was built in Brussels in 1848, more than 800 years after we still look back and said, yeah, we were doing it right back then. Now, some of you would say, 1848, barbaric. We've moved so far past this. Have you ever been to a private Christian school in our country? Do you know what the most popular mascot is? The Crusaders and the Knights. Because the South Austin pacifist doesn't quite have the same ring. It doesn't charge up the football team, right? <laughs> we put in foam and we send out in caricature some of the worst of our history when we walked away from the narrow path of Jesus and took the sword instead and killed others in the name of Jesus. Something that Jesus did not one time. Let's jump 500 more years in the future. You have the papal authority, which means the Pope. And at this point, we don't have Protestantism. There are no Presbyterians and Baptists and all of this. This is actually, uh, we have Pope Julius II. Pope Julius II had a nickname, the Warrior Pope. And it wasn't like a snide, it was like a well-known taken on. The Pope, the leader of the Christian church, became a WWE character to, ooh, yeah, don't mess with the warrior pope. And he had a sword and he formed his own military, the Swiss Guard, which he would lead to anyone that threatened his papal authority and kill them in warfare and kept and protected the Vatican. Now, how do you lead a military coup as the leader of the Christian church? What narratives of the past do you have to reclaim to justify where you are? Funny that you hypothetically asked, because that first image that I showed you of Constantine in battle with the angels saying, hey, look, kill over here. Do you know who commissioned that fresco? Of the great Ninja Turtle and artist Raphael. None other than Pope Julius II. And that image is in the Vatican today. You can go see the painting of Constantine today. There was also during this time, Martin Luther, four years after the time of Pope Julius, post the 95 Theses, because we were also selling indulgences, which says, do all you want to abuse and oppress the people around you, to exploit them for your own financial gain. Just slide us on the little aside so we can let your sins go. This is the building of St. Peter's Basilica. And I, I want to say in all of this, I don't doubt the sincerity of belief of Constantine. I don't doubt the sincerity of belief in Godfrey de Bion or of Pope Julius II. I think in their heads, they had heard and received this idea of who Jesus was and were in but some aspect of it had not yet reached their hearts and certainly their hands and their feet for how they lived and moved to the world. It reminds me so much of the rich young ruler in the story of Jesus. I've done all these things. I've mentally ascended to your ideals. And Jesus is like, great. 
sell what you have and give it to the poor. And they go, ooh, no. And I don't just think it's a them problem. I think it's an us problem. And I saw this clip in the last year that I felt like so perfectly uh, illustrated this. It's a clip of Liam Neeson. He was on a press tour for this movie called The Commuter, and he was asked about the pay discrepancy between males and females in Hollywood. The impact of patriarchy, that, that some are paid way more than women are paid. And this is what Liam Neeson said. We're starting. We're starting. Unless they start, you know, it's, it's starting to be these extraordinary averages, very great. And, uh, and we, as men, are going to be part of it, you know. We started it. So we have to be part of the solution. Is that not so much of the story of modern Christianity? We know there has to be a more equitable system. We cannot continue to participate in a world where some people's blessing come at the direct expense of other people. That their exploitation is necessary for our blessing. We know that. Are you willing to lay down your arms? No. No, 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 no. There just has to be equality. And I think these aspects that we see throughout time of Constantine in military battle, of Godfrey de Bion going forward and leading this strike and attack on Jerusalem, on the warrior pope pretending this call of Jesus, protecting this call of Jesus with the sword, is understanding one thing but failing to be able to put it into action. And I think that there are three themes that we see through all of those that echo to us today because we are not done with that story. And so I want to talk about them. And the hope is, is that when you say, I am a Christian, you can say, but not a Christian that behaves in these ways. Not the ones that mark these kind of identifications. The first is this, to operate in this kind of Constantinian Christianity, because he's the one that kicked it off. The first is you have to hold your power as being under attack. It's almost Christmas time. Are you familiar with that little brouhaha we had with Starbucks? You have failed to identify our Christian holiday on your consumer cups. Clearly, Christians are under attack. I walked into Target, and at the end, they had the nerve to say, happy holidays to me. Not Merry Christ. Let's really get that, mus. It's this way of, of ignoring the fact that the majority of religiously affiliated people in the United States of America are Christians. And yet, framing the narrative as we're the ones under attack, we're the ones being persecuted for our beliefs when we have the mass majority of people. And this is a story that I think we see clearly illustrated in Scripture in Exodus 1. You all know Donny Osmond, Joseph and the t amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. That story has just happened. Joseph and his brothers, and he has moved them over to Egypt. And it said, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. 
So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Who has the power in the story? This immigrant community that has moved across the nation to Egypt or the pharaoh with their military superpower. It's Egypt. And yet, the way to hold on to your power and unleash the force of your power in the world is to spin and create a narrative of being harshly under attack. Your ideals, your very self is being threatened. Otherwise, you're just a monster going around harming, oppressing, and walling people out. And so there's a kind of Christianity that understands power not as Jesus did, which is always to serve those who have none, but understands power as something to be held on to, protected, and defended at all costs. Number two, the second attribute is othering. Othering is the, the way where you say, we are over here. This is how we do, this is how we work, this is how we operate. And they over there do it totally different. They are not a part of us. And while that can seem just kind of a helpful distinction to say, well, this is who we are and this is who you are, it actually serves a much more devious purpose, which is, I can't kill my siblings. I can't lead a war against people for whom the image of God is in them too. But I can launch a war against them over there. And if I use dehumanizing language where I describe them and reduce their humanity, their imago Dei, into other terms like illegals or terrorists, now I can lead a war and destroy them and I don't have to repent of that because I was protecting everyone. The world's police even. It was necessary to do. And I think if you come back to Jesus, you see this is not the Jesus narrative. One of my favorite stories in scripture is when Jesus is feeding the 4,000. And because of the patriarchal system, that 4,000 is only 4,000 males. But if you add in the females and children that would have been there, that's like 10,000 people that were miraculously fed. Immediately afterwards in the gospels, the Pharisees say, show us a sign and we'll believe. And Jesus says, you're not getting any sign except for the sign of Jonah. And the normal interpretation of that, which I think is absolutely valid and true, is that if you look at the story of Jonah, he's swallowed by a great fish, vomited on land three days later. That Jesus is prophesying, I will go into the tomb for three days and then I will reemerge. Yes, absolutely true. But that's the appetizer to the Jonah story. What's the Jonah story really about? Jonah ran because he didn't want to go to the Ninevites because they were them. They were other. They were the enemy. And he ultimately does go after being thrown up on land, and he delivers one of the worst evangelical messages you could ever have. Turn or burn. And then what does he do? He goes up on the hillside of the Ninevite town to watch God burn them. Turn or burn, turn or burn. And then he's like, come on, bring the fireworks. And when God doesn't, Jonah's furious. I knew you would do this, God. 
You're so gracious and forgiving and including. And the story serves in the Old Testament to say that it is not just for this people, but it is for all people. The plan from the beginning was the blessing of the Jewish people so that the whole world would be blessed, and yet you have hoarded your blessing. And what Jesus does through this ministry is opens up this Jewish thing to everyone. Peter is critical in doing this, that it's for the Gentiles too, that everyone is included at the table. And in fact, when Jesus goes around and rewards different people's faith, he never rewards the faith of the Jews. It's always the Samaritan and the Canaanite women. It's the Roman centurion that he says no greater faith has been found. Jesus brought a message of inclusion and seeing everyone, and we've gone backwards to a kind of tribalism when we other and separate ourselves. The last one. The last mark of Constantinian Christianity is exploitation as blessing. Exploitation as blessing means that you create a narrative that God has richly blessed us. Do you see the bounty of this world? We say, God bless America. And in so many ways, God has blessed America. What an incredible place to be. I am American. And I'm real close to Canada. And I've been tempted. But I am very much American. (laughs) But to walk around and say, God bless America. And God created this nation as it is. Which part was God playing the heaviest role in? Was it the smallpox blankets? to eradicate the First Nations people that were here when we landed? Was it the oppressive system of slavery at which at one point early on in our country was the greatest financial resource of this country was owned human beings? (laughs) What that requires isn't to say, I just need to feel really bad and my goal today is that just hate yourself. That's the goal. That's what Jesus wants. No. It's to recognize that we didn't get here in isolation, that the world did not start at your birth, but in fact, we stand in a lineage of something that many of us need to see, acknowledge, and repent of. Repentance is my favorite thing in the Christian story. No one does it well in our country, and Christians should be doing it the best, which is we messed up, we're sorry. And not just those words, but now watch us demonstrate a different way of living. Watch us repent in such a way that we are tearing down systems of oppression that continue to marginalize people that don't make up the majority of the power group in our country. This should be the work of Christians, not reinforcing a system that keeps some up here so others can be down there. One of my, uh, this isn't really a game, but if you, one way to, to think of this, if you go to Walmart and you were to buy for any reason like a plastic ball, I, I don't feel like I'm too out of touch to say, like, you can get that for like 50 cents, right? If you buy a plastic ball this size for 50 cents and you see a little insignia stamped into it that says made in China, do you think that the harvesting of whatever materials went into that the creation of that ball, the packaging, the shipping, the receiving, the opening, the placing in the store, and the ability to have that space, do you really believe that is a 50-cent proposition? That it should lead us to ask, who's getting screwed? 
Now, I know not everyone here is in a place, I'm not trying to shame Walmart or for people here that live very close to the poverty line that are just trying to make ends meet. I see that and I get it. But we do have to take account that some of us are taking part in oppressive systems and we're calling it God's blessing. So what do we do? The hope of Jesus Christ is not to despair but it's to be energized by this call of a new kingdom. A kingdom where no one of us is free until all of us are free. A kingdom that isn't just for later, but it's for here and now that we get to actively participate in that says, I'm interested in the mutual thriving of all people, that my thriving and success should not come at the expense of someone else. And I bear the responsibility of power and privilege of having been here of seeing the different systems and calling out the oppressive ones, dismantling the oppressive ones. This was the work of Jesus. He was dismantling a religious system that had become oppressed. And it shocks me constantly when people are like, Jesus, he was the one with the love messages. Yes, and the messages that so threatened the system that they killed him. The narrative I grew up with never made sense. He was all love and hugs and rainbows and these monsters killed him at the end. No, they killed him because he threatened the positions of power that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had created by their religious might to exclude some and elevate others. The invitation of Jesus Christ is one, if you are a person that has been oppressed and marginalized, and I know that there are many in this room, know that Christ is with you. And no part of the Christian oppression that you have been a part of in this country is any part of God's design. And for those of us, and I'm talking to me, that have benefited greatly from oppressive systems, to see and to call out and to participate in their dismantling so that everyone can be free. Not violent dismantling so we just throw it all out, but mindful dismantling so that oh, the water can rise all ships that all people can find this liberation and grace and freedom. Isn't that what it's about? It should be good news for everyone, not just our team. Would you pray with me? God, my prayer is that for those with eyes to see, ears to hear, that God, you would move us in ways that recognize and see and call out this Constantinian Christianity. This facade of faith that perpetuates harm and oppression and marginalization. God, may we be liberators and peacemakers. And God, may we be willing to sacrifice what we have been given so that others can have, so that others can be set free and may we, in the process, find our own liberation. Amen and amen. Thank you, Kirk. Join me on your feet if you're able. Okay, these words as our benediction. Little warhorse, if the yoke is easy and the burden is light, why are you so tired? You can find reasons to make light heavy all alone at the top with your arguments. You have heard this is a season of longing. Long then to be free of the blessings meant for someone else and the defenses you keep rehearsing. You will be safe. 
when everyone is. Go in peace.